All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today, got some news for you. Stuck Mojo are back. That's right, they are back now with a brand new record. Here come the Infidels, and it is smoking. One of my favorite Stuck Mojo records that I've ever heard. Uh, and as Mojo is out touring, all the details are on Facebook. Just search for Stuck Mojo. Doing it all with new singer Robbie J and a guitar guitarist, songwriter, and one of my best friends, Rich Ward. Uh, and uh, another one of my best friends, drummer Frank Fonsere, are here on Talk is Jericho to tell us all about how they got to this point, giving us an inside look at the making of the new Mojo record, the decision to part ways with original singer Bones, how they found Robbie J. They got some crazy road stories opening for Pantera, being stranded on the side of the highway in Germany, nearly losing all their money in Amsterdam, and of course they're talking about the early days of Mojo, including singing Wrathchild, performing Wrathchild with the Iron Maiden singer Bruce Dickinson. Great conversation with rich and frank uh, also i know them so well because they're my bandmates in fozzy uh they're going to talk about the differences between writing fozzy songs and mojo songs so many cool things you also might hear a little something something about the new fozzy studio record hmm? but let's get back to while we're here this week stuck mojo is back the new album is here come the infidels let's start out this podcast with a brand new stuck mojo song here from here come the infidels this is charles bronson The justice system is deficient Through my point of view, none of this is new It's perspective for you, punishment is due My vigilante vendetta, roaming with the Beretta Fighting fire with fire, stopping crime with crime Yo, I'm losing my mind, now you're under attack Sooner or later, somebody pushes back I gotta fight to protect my family From a corrupt and violent society My solution may seem like insanity I'm Charles Bronson, the vigilante
music from Stuck Mojo, Charles Bronson. Love it. We're going to talk all about the making, the idea behind Charles Bronson. From the new studio record, Here Come the Infidels. It's available now. You can get it on Amazon. Please use those Talk is Jericho links if you do. You can find them at podcastone.com. You know the drill. So Rich and Frank are on the way. But before we jump in, let me say a couple things. A big thank you to all of you guys uh, for supporting this sponsor who make this podcast possible. Without your support and the crazy sponsors, great, great people, I wouldn't be able to do this for you for free for twice a week. Thanks uh, to Diamond Dallas Page, DDP Yoga, and the DDP Yoga Now app. DDP Yoga has changed so many lives, and not just mine. Let's look at Jake the Snake, Scott Hall, Nick Foley, even AJ Styles. Here with me right now in New Zealand, they've all experienced the benefits of DDP Yoga, and now DDP has taken it to a whole other level with the DDP Yoga Now app. It's a one-stop DDP Yoga shop, basically. That's all I use these days. The app is all the workouts which means I can do them right from my phone. And the app also has all sorts of cool features as well. You can use it to track your heart rate and calories. You can use it for pain tracking, measurements, progress photos. And if you're in need of a little extra motivation, how about this? You can access motivational messages from DDP himself. He even hosts a gluten-free, dairy-free cooking show, which you can view right on the app. Okay, and how about this? DDP Yoga Now uh, app subscribers won't ever get bored doing the same workouts over and over again because DDP has added completely new two. 2.0 workouts. All right. I like doing my mine over. I like stand up my same my same one every week, every day. But uh, sometimes you got to try something different. DDP has got all new different workouts and uh, weekly live workouts from the DDP Yoga Performance Center. So all of this, it is the place to be. And for a limited time, you can get the DDP Yoga DVDs for twenty percent off. How about that? Plus three months of full access to the DDP Yoga Now app by going to ddpyoga.com/jericho. That's all you got to do to take advantage of this great deal just go to ddpyoga.com slash jericho get 20 percent off the ddp yoga program plus three months of full access to the ddp yoga now app okay ddpyoga.com slash jericho if you're sitting on the fence don't you've heard me talk about this i know millions of you have heard this podcast and millions of you have heard me talk about ddp yoga this really works it's the real deal guys get used to it it's not going anywhere this is going to be known as one of the greatest fitness workouts you can do not only for your mind for your body but for uh, everything else in between i want you to uh, give this a try trust me if you're having some problems you want to get in better shape you want to get better flexibility ddp yoga is the place to do it ddpyoga.com slash jericho change your life and do that today all right uh, a few months ago, uh, actually right after we did the Kiss Cruise, uh, something else I want to talk to you about, I had this idea uh, about getting my own ship. I had so much fun on the Kiss Cruise, I thought, why not do a rock and wrestling cruise? Okay, do uh, get get my own ship, combine my two favorite things, rock and roll, get some really cool bands and wrestling, get a, a really kind of cool vibe where you're doing actually matches on the ship, maybe a little bit of a tournament. Rock and wrestling, what I've known, what I've been known for, for years and years and years, uh, and I want to invite all of you to come with me. What do you think of this idea? Do you like the idea of the of the Chris Cruise, so to speak, of the rock and wrestling cruise, the rock until you dropkick cruise, the, uh, the Jera cruise, whatever you want to call it? Do you like this idea? Would you go on a cruise that features music and wrestling? If you are interested in this, if you think it's a good idea, I want you to help me out and do this survey. You can find it at www.surveymonkey.com. 
slash r slash chris jericho surveymonkey.com slash r slash chris jericho take it literally takes about a minute and a half to uh, to fill this out go on that go come aboard the uh, the survey deal and uh, let me know what you think if you like this idea of a rock and wrestling cruise i need your help because the more people that fill out the survey the more uh, of a look they'll, they'll, they'll take at it and listen we've been working on this for six months it's almost at fruition i just need you to help me out surveymonkey.com slash r lowercase slash chris jericho all right or, or go to my facebook chris jericho you'll find all the details up there go do it now all right rich and frank from stuck mojo are coming up all right so sitting in a hotel room with two men and uh <laughs> things are about to get naked soon hopefully uh with rich ward and frank fonsoray my bandmates and fozzy but this is more about the stuck mojo the new stuck mojo everyone's been talking about the uh the return of the Stuck Mojo Groove, and yeah. uh, you guys are here. And I, I can Thanks feel, for having us. I can yeah, feel you. the buzz. I can feel the, the sexosity <laughs> steaming through all of this, man. But it's cool. It's cool to see you guys here uh, in Atlanta, and uh, both of you guys got toques on. Thank you. <laughs> It's, uh, it's bad hair day for both of us, I guess. What's your hair look like now, Frank? What you got going on? Oh, I, I, it's a surprise. Oh, hair <laughs> surprise? Yeah. It's, it's, it's somewhere between George Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't decided. It's a work in progress. The I funny thing is I was looking at some pictures the other day of, uh, I can't remember what tour it was, maybe the one where, where Duff came and saw us mm. at the garage, and like you got like the blonde hair and the black beard, mm-hmm. which is my favorite Frank look, but you hated it because people were saying you look like Guy Fieri. Yeah, I know. It was like one more person tells me that. And it's done, and, and you super, like you legitimately hated it. Yeah, it's like I mean, it'd be one thing if it just if it was just like that was my natural hair, and, and people said that. But it's like I obviously bleach my hair blonde. So when people say that, it's like they're saying I'm trying to look like him. Like you know who you're trying to look like? You're trying to look like Guy Fieri. Try and look like Guy Fieri. I don't know. That's why I don't want anyone to think that. <laughs> So that's well, why you could always tell him it's like, listen, I started bleaching my hair before Guy Fieri started yeah. bleaching his. He's copying me. You know, I'm in a famous band. Right. Yeah. You may I, watch cooking shows, yeah. but if you watched more MTV, you would know me. Yeah. yeah MTV. Because right? <laughs> we're huge MTV darlings. We're number three on Dial MTV. I met 1978. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could do that, but I prefer just having the comparison dye, which it has. Is like now that I don't dye my hair anymore, it's like no one says it. Oh, you don't dye it at all. Oh, no. It's black now. You yeah. But. I mean, yeah, it's now they gone, don't blonde. Now they're like, right. you look like Samuel L. Jackson. Right, like- exactly. <laughs> I've gone back to my natural color, which is black number one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was laughing at Rich just briefly. You always have the bun and the do-rag on uh, to the point where when we did the thing with Slash, the tour with Slash last year, he's like, hey, where's that wicked guitar player with the long hair? Where is he at? I'm like, he's right behind you. <laughs> he never wears his hair down unless he's on stage. And, and, and that was because, and I've told this to you before, it's like um, Anthony Kiedis was like one of my heroes right around yeah. that end of the 80s into the 90s like I, I the chili peppers that mother's milk blood sugar sex magic those records really changed my life and i remember the first time that i saw video footage of anthony kiedis he came on stage with a hat on and then like into the first 10 seconds he ripped the hat off and the the, the hair to his waist started spinning it and i was like oh Mm-hmm. It was like the reveal, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's like the stripper comes out and she's got the outfit on and you're like, take it off. Come on. <laughs> and I felt like 
it was such a great uh, you know bit of stage craft mm-hmm. but it was understated it wasn't you know yeah, no, so that's been you know ever since then it's like hey i wear my hair up when i'm off stage when i'm on stage i put the battle gear on that's when the demon comes out <laughs> that's when the demons come out so are you gonna maybe adopt anthony's new uh haircut uh and, and look Coming up. I did buy a piece of Tupperware, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rich sent me a text. Have you seen Anthony Kiedis? He's got the no. Super Bowl cut. Oh, he does and the mustache. Okay. Yeah, he's just gone total like Beatles 1965 or something <laughs> like that, right? And it's it's an intentional like it's intentionally bad to be hip and cool. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, yeah, that's the new thing, right? To right. not look cool. So cool. So so uncool that you're cool. That's. <laughs> but that's always kind of been the Peppers. Verdict, though. Like, they've never had the quote-unquote cool look. Although Anthony had the super long hair, but in his world, nobody had long hair. Like, if you're, like, in a alternative band, it's kind of that style. Yep. You know? Yeah, he, he really did pioneer, and, and he was a shepherd for a lot of us uh, kind of disgruntled metal guys in the mm-hmm. late 80s when we were all like, oh, bro, another Britney Fox record. Yeah. You know, like, things were just going bad, and even my favorite bands like Priest and Maiden were not making, in my opinion, their best albums. You know, things were just changing a little bit, and I think that was kind of the genesis of Stuck Mojo was in was uh, realizing that there were bands who were willing to take risks like the Chili Peppers, like Faith No More, and then Fishbone. And there were some interesting bands. You know, like, I just saw Living Color the other day. They fit in their oh, Jane's Addiction. Totally. Yeah. All of those. It was a great, it was a movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then you could be a Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, person as well i mean there were several little sub movements happening in that early 90s period but i felt like the chili peppers brought more energy where the the seattle sound was more about shoegazing and darkness and dirgy yes and introspection Mm -hmm. it's like yeah my life sucks i'm gonna write a song about it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it was all like (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was all about party. how horrible life was, you know, how terrible life was. But you know, the funny thing is, like, I was anti, you know, if you want to call it grunge at the time, because I was such a metal guy holding on to the to the strings, last strings of, of metal. But you listen back to, to what is grunge now, it's some pretty pretty badass stuff and and it's it's yeah there's some shoegazing but it's also it's much more it's much more punky mm-hmm. than I remember. It's very punk rock, kind of a modern modern version of that. Yeah, there's. It's funny when there's kind of a uh, a musical movement like that, where you know, there there's there's residue left over of what can the songs that came out of it that were just good songs, you mm-hmm. know. And then there's other stuff you hear that you might like for nostalgic reasons, but it remi- it might remind you of a certain period of time that you liked. But the song itself isn't that great. You wouldn't play the song for somebody and go, "Man, what a great song." And then there's those others like there's you know off like the first Pearl Jam album. Or um, bad motor finger, yeah, you know, some great that, riffage. On yeah, that. that were like these songs, you know, stand the test of time. Even though that era is gone, mm-hmm. you know, they they just like it's just amazing how a good song will will last, you know. And um, I found that you that at that point in time, like in the eighties, when we kind of were growing up, it was metal, and there was dance music, and there was R and B, and there was pop. Mm-hmm. And then in that 90s period, it started kind of melding. Like you yeah. mentioned, yeah. some of the bands were playing a lot of different styles, like Stuck Mojo. Yeah. I mean, what year did you start Mojo? 89. 89? Yeah. That's when really all that, that kind of crossing of genres really began, you know? I'm, I was working at uh, 
was it uh, TGI Fridays as a waiter. So uh-huh. I had all the buttons and the suspenders and the striped outfit. The flair. The flair. Yeah, yeah. flair, thank you, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that's what musicians do, right? You either push a lawnmower or you wait tables because th- those types of jobs will allow you to have some flexible hours and you can have long hair. Yeah. You know, it's like you, or you have to be a hairdresser's assistant or something. <laughs> You're washing towels that's or right, something. That's right, that's right, that's right. So, uh, <laughs> I, I met this uh, black bass player with dread who was another waiter you know at, at TGI Fridays and he was like hey you're a good t-. you know how you do the same way you and I met Chris it's like yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. you're like, oh, I like this band I like that band and he said yeah I'm jamming with this drummer we're looking for a guitar player I went over to the rehearsal space the drummer was into Dave Weckl and Vinnie Caliuta and all these kind of jazzy rock guys and in other words he's not talking about me he's talking <laughs> yeah. about somebody else I'm talking about someone who you know, watched videotapes of the drummer who plays for Frank Zappa, and, and it put a little wood in his pee-pee. You know what I mean? He was <laughs> that would be Terry Bozio, yeah, maybe? exactly right. right. And then, and his name was Richard Farmer, and then Dwayne Fowler was the bass player, and he's the black reggae bass player, funk guy. He has, knows nothing about rock. The, the drummer really doesn't know a whole lot about rock, and I was the rock guy. And the, so the genesis of Stuck Mojo was this um, funky, groovy, uh, fusion-y uh, rhythm section with a heavy metal guitar player. And which fit right in line with the experimentation we're talking about, what was going on with the Chili Peppers, and that Flea's this funk bass player, and they have this. And so we were looking for Anthony Kiedis. That was the idea. Got to find the guy who can sing, who can do a little give it away, give it away. We're trying to find who is that guy. Because that was something that the Peppers didn't even have was an interracial band or a multiracial band. They were all white guys that sounded black. Yes. But you actually had, so, so the bass player was black and the drummer was black? And the drummer was white. White. Although so, we did have a black drummer later. So I was the only white guy in the band at one point. So, But let me ask you this, though. And it, it's interesting to me because you grew up a total rock guy, a metal guy. But then again, you also have a 70s influence, too. Like, I'm thinking, like, Earth, Wind & Fire in Chicago and, you know, Doobie Brothers, where there were interracial bands. Yeah. Did you have a metal band that you that you did before Stuck Mojo? Not an original one. Okay. I just played high school dances playing, you know, Brian Adams and Duran right. Duran. Yeah. Yeah, that was my rite of passage because back when we were growing up, I didn't realize you could play originals. I thought originals were for like really talented guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just supposed to play Live Wire by Motley Crue. Yeah. And that was like what you did, right? Yeah. Because if you learn somebody else's songs, someone may hire you to play the pool party. Or, you know, or, or uh, say hire, have you, <laughs> allow you <laughs> to play the pool party. And that's all we cared about. Can I want to play a pool party? I want to play, a, you know, somebody's sweet 16 backyard grill off, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. And that's what you want to do when you're in a band. The idea if you were going to get in a, an original band and play a club and people were going to pay, that di- like didn't even seem like that was in the cards. I didn't. Mm. That was for other people who were more talented or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's and particularly idea. at the time, that was not you, that was not the way at the time. You yeah, know? If somebody was in an original band, you're like, you, you write your own songs? You can't do that. Mm, you can't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you got to play stuff that people already know. Yeah, which yeah. is what I found was amazing about you is that you were writing originals in high school mm-hmm. and recording stuff like. I I didn't know anybody who did yeah. that. No one like, of my friends. Like I, said, I listened back to the songs that we did in high school. My school high school band was Scimitar. And um, 
you listen back to it, and obviously they're recorded like shit. They're one take. I'm singing and playing at the same time, or the guitar players. But they're, they're actually, you listen back to it, and for like three 16-year-old kids as a power trio, because we couldn't find another guitar player, they're actually like, there's some hooks. There, there's some stuff that it, had we reworked them, reworked them, it wasn't bad. And that's why when you hear about guys like, you know, Lennon McCartney or Hetfield and you know, Ulrich writing these great songs at 20 and 21 years old, I can see how you would do it if you concentrated on it. Yeah. But I think we just never concentrated enough, because you're thinking, oh... How how are you ever going to make it? You know, yeah. Like, what level. is that? What is that even rite of passage? The idea of like, y- you read about it in Circus Magazine about yeah. the A and R guy coming to the show, and right? Ron Keel's talking about having a bidding war for Keel or something. It's like, how does it even? How do you even how do, you do that? Yeah. yeah, it seems like such a foreign concept. And I think what has made my writing style for for Fozzie and Stuck Mojo original was that my first four or five years were playing Duran Duran. Because it's a different technique to play dance music than it is to play metal. Now, my love was playing Motley Crue and Twisted Sister and Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. I did that on my leisure time at home, mm-hmm. learning Screaming for Vengeance, the same way you would learn Power Slave from top to sure, bottom. Right. But I think all of those things is what, what makes us who we are, right? All mm-hmm. those... The, 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 the palette as a musician. Yes. How about you, Frank? What was your high school band? Uh, I I was never in a band in high school. Wow. No, I wasn't in my first band until I actually graduated. And oddly enough, my first band was an original band, not by my design. I um I did the typical thing of a Atlanta musician and looked in the creative loafing every week. You know <laughs> the, the newspaper. That yeah, comes the out, local, yeah, the local you know, free rag. The local free rag, and you know musicians wanted. And um I the, <laughs> the first band I ever went to check out out of that. Uh, out of that was a reggae band, but what's funny was I um I just like saw an ad and I called this guy and um, they were looking for a drummer and I said yeah I'm a drummer and we were just talking and I remember him saying uh, oh, I remember asking so like do you guys play heavy metal because that's all I cared about yeah. you know and I was like do you play heavy metal and he's like yeah we're heavy and I didn't you know I didn't have the sense to know that that you know like that's a red flag you know <laughs> and so I went and met with these guys at this sh- excuse me this uh, crappy little you say uh, shit. okay shitty rehearsal space in this like industrial part of Atlanta just like I was scared to even go there you know and they had this shitty rehearsal space and it was these two guys and when I first saw them I was like okay this is not going to work you know because they did not have like the look I was hoping that you know two guys from you know like Nikki and Tommy from Motley Crue were going to be sitting there and it was just you know these guys and they were a reggae band you know and I was just like Okay, why did they tell me they played heavy metal? They play like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Bob Marley. Yeah, it's heavy, heavy, man. It's like emotionally heavy, man. When I met Frank... He was in the band Lethal Promise. Wow. That, that was, was the name of my first band. real band. And, and they were killer. And I remember I loved them so much that I asked their guitar player, can I guitar tech for you? No. Yes. So I was a fan of Frank's band, Lethal Promise. They sounded like <laughs> to me like a cross between kind of Queensryche and some other kind. They had just enough prog element mm. that it was really cool, but they were a hard rock band. Had like a super gorgeous John Sykes looking dude on guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what they were yeah. they were, they were yeah. really good yeah. and they were a popular local band That's yeah when we, I met Frank but when I first got together with those guys and you know like I first met the bass player he and I decided to work together and then we met the guitar player Chris who's now my brother-in-law he actually became my brother-in-law oh, yeah. like like in 87 um, but anyway so 
when we first got together and it was the full, we were a four piece and we were uh, or three piece and we were looking for a singer and another guitar player. I remember Chris, my brother-in-law at the time was like, well, we're going to be an all original band. And I was just kind of like, huh, wait, mm-hmm. you can't do that. I was thinking about the move, you know, like what our stage moves are going to be when we're playing You're in Love by Rat, you know, like, and he's like, no, we're not playing any of that crap. We're playing our own stuff. And he had already written a bunch of songs, too. Mm-hmm. And I was skeptical. And then he played me, you know, some stuff. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And instantly it was like, yeah, I'm excited about this. It's like we're going to play our own music. And this was like in the club scene was unheard of at the time. Right. right, You know, and I remember actually booking like a week long stint at this club in town. And we were in there and set up and ready to go when the owner asked us like what our song list was. And, Oh no, no. He asked us, how do you want me to advertise this? And it was like, uh, I forget the name of the club, but whatever the name of the club is presents all original music from lethal promise. And the guy was like, he got this look on his face like, you, huh? play, you don't play any covers? We're like, no, we don't know any. <laughs> He's like, see ya. What year did Lethal Promise break up? Uh, we broke up like in 89. Okay. Yeah, right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you first started with Mojo, what was the reaction from the scene? Because it's still a very heavy metal community back in 89-90. Yeah, we were lucky because there was a local band called Follow For Now. That was David Ryan Harris's band who went on to write. I mean, he's John Mayer's right-hand guy now. Oh, okay. So he, he's a Grammy-winning writer. He's a, But he had a like a Fishbone-style, all-black kind of rock group. So Atlanta was already... Who were amazing. They were amazing, yeah. So Atlanta was already um, establishing itself as a, as a city who was open to multiracial. Bands. Which is what kind of a city it is. Correct. Yeah. Right. You exactly. can never do that. Like maybe not in Seattle or, you know, Detroit might be different. But yeah, the groundwork was already there. You know, it's just, but they were really, you know, Stuck Mojo was really, all that was still fresh and new enough to be able to stand out and be exciting. But it wasn't like you didn't get stuff thrown at you because there was a black guy in the band or something. Yeah. You know? and, and people were really. I think willing to give anything new. It was a real transitional period of time in 89 yeah, was, and 90. Yeah. It was like things were happening and even, even glam bands were wearing flannels, you know, things yeah. were changing. I think the people's acceptance for things that were different, it just, they had the appetite for it. So it was easy for us. I mean, we played some weird gigs where people were like, uh, I didn't know you had black guys in your group, yeah. you know, which is a little strange, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. But that's not to me. I never took it as racist. It was it was always a it's a cultural thing. People expect a rock band to show up, and it's four or five white guys with long hair. Well, yeah, they just have this idea of what that's supposed to look like. Yeah. You know, but you're talking about kind of the rap rock, which became huge in the '90s. And I know you're, you're a very humble guy, but is Stuck Mojo the first rap rock band that you knew of, a rap metal band that you knew of, or had you heard anything else? 
that had kind of been in that vibe. I think we were the first one that did it heavy. Mm-hmm. There were some other kind of funky bands. There was one called Urban Dance Squad from Holland, but they were more dancey kind of right. rock. We were the first band to tune the guitar down like Tony Iommi and play riffs and and have an aggressive rap vocal style. And what made us original was that we didn't have a rapper. Bones was never a good, like, he could never make rap records. He was like uh, Henry Rollins or something. He had a personality. Right. Like, he, like when you heard him, he, like, even Little John, uh, Bones worked with Little John after, I think, in 2000 or something. And, and Little John even told Bones, you need a band. Like, you're not this guy who can just make records. You're, you need to be part of a group. Gotcha. You need to front a band. You need to right. front a band. And I think that that's what made us original is that we didn't just get Snoop Dogg to front a rock group. Because even when I watched the um, Prophets of Rage, like, I don't like it. Because it's a, a rock band with rappers who you can tell don't know how to interact in a band. And that's basically uh, the uh, Rage Against the Machine guys, but with Chuck D as the vocalist? And the and that Be Real guy gotcha. from Cypress Hill. Gotcha. So it still feels like two different worlds trying to be Doesn't forced mesh. into each other. Right. Where Stuck Mojo always felt like a band because it was never like this guy from this world, this guy from this world, and we're trying to force them. This felt... I think Stuck Mojo was the first time that you saw something that felt like this is a natural evolution of what's happening in music. And Rage Against the Machine put their record out before us, but we were, I mean, Tom Morello was still in another band called Lockup, you know, three years after Stuck Mojo existed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were the first. Yeah, and there, I think so. And there was a lot of bands, like he said, that mixed like the rap and the rock, but a lot of the music was trying to be rap music created by guitars and drums whereas Stuck Mojo was a rock metal band that happened to be fronted by a rapper mm-hmm. you know where there's a difference it's like there's a difference between a guitar player trying to sound like a turntable you know that's true when you listen to like Tom Morello's solos mm-hmm. it always he wanted to be kind of like a turntable like he's scratching yeah yeah I love Van Halen and Randy Rhodes and Angus Young I had no interest in being mm-hmm. the DJ for <laughs> two live crew <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start realizing that Mojo was, was starting to catch on because I remember like you show me videos I don't know if it's been 95 or 96 just Atlanta scene clubs just packed packed to the gills like was that something that happened fairly quickly did the word get out and what was it that made you guys get to get to that level so quickly in this area and then beyond what happens to a lot of bands in that I think we were good people thought we were it was this genuine movement and that people loved to attach themselves to things that were genuine and different and something they could feel like was theirs they were part of something unique but also we had some guys in the band who were kind of crazy so there was a band that was talking smack about us another local band and uh and they were talking smack about us on stage. So the next time they played, we showed up and walked up on stage during their performance and said, you're done. Your show's <laughs> over. And they were like, started laughing. No, no, you're done. That was it. And their show stopped. And we literally threatened to kill them <laughs> during their set. What band was that? Uh, the Onions or something like that. You know, <laughs> eggs. Eggs. Yeah, eggs, yeah. <laughs> and... And then we played a show one time, and I punched a guy through his window in the parking lot because he was drunk and backed into my car. And we just were getting in fights all the time, and we just started getting this reputation of being crazy. Dangerous. Well, we, were. Yeah. we were. We were just normal guys that were just kids, right? Kids do dumb things. But with rage. Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the rest of the bands in Atlanta were all pretty boys with their hair swooped over one eye, and people were like... 
That's not dangerous. That's marshmallow fluff. These guys over here in Stuck Mojo just attacked another band. <laughs> yeah. And then we opened up for 311 at a sold-out show at the Masquerade. And then instantly stole all of their suburban white kids who thought our rap rock was great. And then the next time we played the Masquerade, we did 800 people. The next time we played the Masquerade, we sold it out at, at, at 1,200 people. And we didn't even have a record deal. Mm, wow. So, and that's what you always hear like about a band that's selling out huge amounts. Like I'm just watching the Tom Petty documentary right now, which is awesome. You guys should check it out. But in Gainesville, they were the biggest band or Twisted Sister in New York selling you know, 10,000 tickets. And no one's even giving them a look uh, from any record company anywhere. When did the connection finally happen for you guys? Scott Burns, that famous death metal producer from oh, yeah, yeah. Tampa, yeah. who did like Sepultura and, and yeah, Obituary yes, and exactly Death. Right. And, yeah. He got a copy of our three-song demo. And sent it to Monty Connor at Roadrunner, and said, "You need to sign this band. This is a this is your band." But he had just signed a band called Dog Eat Dog, which was another rap rock band. Which, when you're Roadrunner Records and you're responsible for Fear Factory and Typo and King Diamond and Annihilator, and yeah. Yeah. you don't need two rap rock bands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's already shameful enough to have one. <laughs> and he passed the uh, demo tape over to Borivor uh, Kurgan, who now runs Blabbermouth. That's right, yeah. And uh, Bory at the time was the head of A&R at Century Media Records. And, and Century Media was a small organization at that point. It was probably six or eight people in the U.S. office. So it was the ownership, the owners, uh, Bory, and a small staff promotion. You know, people worked in the warehouse, distribution and stuff. And they had um, distribution through R.E.D. And I just remember Bory saying, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you 20000 bucks to make a record. Um, and we'd already made the album for 30000 <laughs> <laughs> it's a typical story. Yeah. <laughs> so we took a $10,000 loss to release our first record. <laughs> you negotiated for less money. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like every young gr- group of guys, we just wanted to be, uh, you know, we yeah. wanted to get in a van, you know, have a record. You, you mean you're going to give us money and you're going to put a, a record on the shelf? And we get to go tour, and mm. that was it. And yeah. there's I, nothing like that first time that you play a non-local show. That you know that you play a show that's like out of state that you traveled to go to. I mean, it's like mm. there's no feeling like that in the world. Like that feeling of like expanding because you know the people in the audience aren't just your friends and family members. You know, right, it's right, like right. you're playing to like an, a virgin audience. I mean, yeah. So. Well, you you know how you probably experienced it yourself in the business in that once there's an awareness that uh, people start saying, oh, my God, have you seen Chris Jericho and that, that the buzz happens? You know, you actually in your young brain start thinking how important you are at this point. <laughs> but that actually helps because yeah. ego is a big part sure of this thing. So when you get older, you learn to temper it and you can be wise and how it's part of your arsenal, right? Humble when you need to, arrogant when you need yeah. to. Back then, you were just arrogant, right? right? And that's what made Guns N' Roses great and Motley Crue great. And that's what I think made Stuck Mojo great is that we had no awareness that we weren't the greatest band on the planet. We really thought we were the greatest. Yeah. Like, we would play with any band and we would talk about it. These guys are in so much trouble when they go on after us. Like, you know, like we were like a gang, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And what was even better is that we really didn't get along as guys. Like, none of us even liked each other. I mean, it was real issues with internally, but it even helped us. You know, it's like, be, I guess, uh, you know, being on a football team with guys that you didn't like, but you knew when you got on the field, yeah. what you did together was special. I had that with Triple H in the early 2000s. We didn't like each other at all. 
didn't have any use for each other, and always, but always had great matches. To the point where I think that was maybe even encouraged for us not to like each other. By totally the agree. Yeah, when you could look to your left and you were like, that's my brother, but I don't necessarily like him. He doesn't necessarily like me. Yeah. But when we get on the battlefield, <laughs> I got his back. He's mm-hmm. got mine. And mm-hmm. we're going to kill everyone together. Yeah. Now, when Central Media got you guys, they put a lot of money into, uh, into sending you guys out on tour. Yeah, that was the way back then. In the 90s, there was not a lot of money spent uh, in in music videos because MTV was now not playing. You know, Headbangers Ball was starting to go away. Things were... were, uh, So they were doing tour support. And I remember our first tour was supporting Machine Head on our first national tour. It was $80,000 bill for that tour. They paid $80,000 to get you on the tour. Correct. Wow. Machine Head's first... Uh, headlining tour of the U.S. We were their opener. Uh, and $80,000 when someone says, well, did you just give it to them? It's never phrased that way. It's always, we're going to share a bus. Uh, we're going to share a truck. Uh, we're going to share some crew guys. We're going to share this. and We're going oh, to share some advertising. Here's what all that's going to cost. If you broke it down, you were like, Y'all must have skimmed some money off the top. Because <laughs> I don't think the bus cost $160,000 for the tour. But that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. When you're a young band, you got to pay your dues. And sometimes that means paying for the opportunity to play in front of somebody else's fan base. Mm-hmm. And it was worth every penny of it, which is why when Fozzie goes out and a young band uh, comes along and says, hey, I'm going to do a bus share, or they want an opportunity to go and play, it is the best advertising that you could spend. You yeah. can spend a 10,000 bucks and buy the back cover of a big national magazine or you can spend $10,000 on a tour and that tour will be four times more valuable yeah. than that back page on a magazine. That's right. Yeah. Do you know one of those bands that, that toured with us is the bass players now in Bullet for My Valentine? Yes. Yeah. I can't remember what they were called. Like, Revoker. 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 That's yes. it. Yeah, Jamie from, from, from Bullet was in Revoker. I still have were, the t-shirt. Yeah, Revoker's a great band. Yeah. I mean, they were really good. We've always had great yeah, openers. We have. We have. We had some, good, some that have done some good stuff afterwards as well. Yeah. Which is why it's good. Frank, what was your first tour with Stuck Mojo? I actually joined the band right after that first tour with Machine Head. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, they had another drummer, the guy who recorded the first record, and uh, I actually he he ended up leaving the band after that first tour, and I joined after that. Oddly enough, though, I'd actually been in the band twice before that. Um, <laughs> Just like Fozzie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, but like what he was saying about how valuable that is, even though I wasn't on that tour when I was in the band and touring, you know. All the time, people would come up to me and like, "Hey, I discovered you guys on that Machine Head tour." You know, I discovered you guys on that Machine Head tour, and so yeah, what he was saying—that's so valuable sure to, is, to yeah. make that investment. And um, so yeah, I came in the band. Uh, the first thing I recorded was we did a uh, an EP uh, for just for Europe only, and it was like what six songs or so. Yeah, it was called Violet. Violated. Violated yeah, and. Um, and then we uh, we did that, and we did uh, our first European tour. I was on the very first European tour that the band ever did, which was great. And then, five bands on two buses. Five oh, bands on two buses. Who were the bands? It was a band called My Own Victim from Kentucky, and then a band called Power of Expression. They were German, and a band called Marauder that was from Brooklyn, and then us and a band called Slapshot from <laughs> Boston. Or, from Boston, the hardcore band. So okay, you guys were meeting. Okay, let me tell you this right now. So. 
you know how it is when, when, when you're touring with, a, with another band on the bus. And we've had some pretty good luck. We've had a couple bands where there's some guys on there you just don't want to see. And there's mm-hmm. one that pops in my head right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say his name, but he's bald. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, there must have been some, some interactions with some of these bands because you don't know anybody else. There must oh, have been yeah. some guys that, that rubbed you the wrong way because five bands on two buses. We had 18 people on our bus. <laughs> We had three bands and the crew and the tour manager were on our bus. The other bus was smaller, and there were two bands. So we had 18 people on a bus for 10 weeks wow. in Europe for the first time. We're the first time we were ever over there. So, yeah, I mean, you just like – but you get to that point where you're just like, you know – yeah, are there guys that are pissing you off? Yeah, are, you know, like the accommodations, whatever. You just deal with it and you just realize you're, you know, you're living your dream. You're getting to play every night, you know. And the one, the, the the carrot for us, you know, was the big, the last show of the tour was at the time the biggest show we had ever done. We were on the Dynamo Festival uh, in Eindhoven, Holland. And it was like the biggest metal festival, at least in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we were the first band on the main set. And that was like the last show of the tour after 10 weeks. That was like the last yeah, show of the tour. Dessert. So yeah, that was a great thing to look forward to. I mean, all, a lot of the show, most of the shows were great. It was not, it was a great experience, but of course, 10 weeks on the road, you're going to experience those downtimes. I mean, one of the guys, in Slapshot left the tour like a couple weeks into yeah. the tour. He was just like, I'm tired of this. I'm done. I'm out of here. Yeah. And because they were smart guys. Yeah. yeah. Like the rest of us were like... Well, 10 weeks is insane, oh, especially yeah. with those conditions. You know, yeah. you're just a, a nothing band at the No time. air conditioning in the summer. You'd wake up and as soon as the sun hit the side of the bus at about 8 a.m. You'd start baking like a pie. It's, yeah. It's like a can <laughs> of beans on the fire. Yeah, exactly. When Fozzie does tours in Europe, yeah. our double-deckers, we have two bunks. These were fitted for three bunks high in the upstairs. Oh, so yeah. So literally, when you're trying to turn over, your shoulder hits the top of the bunk above you. Yeah. So so and so it's like a coffin is much bigger. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) This is really pushing the limits of comfort. But again, uh, when you're young, you can do those types of things mm -hmm, because. Um, it's all new and exciting. That's right. And your expectations are, I want to be the greatest in the world. You haven't gotten to the point where you're saying, wow, this music business is a real right. piece of shit. Wow. <laughs> you know, my record company really doesn't care. Wow. You know, like this, this is like all of the things that you don't know once they start to reveal itself about the business and then it starts to make you, um, it takes a little bit of the joy out of it. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned it's funny. You mentioned Keel before. Out of all the bands, you mentioned them. But I remember specifically being a kid, and when Keel's third album came out or second album came out, I was like, "These guys, they must be millionaires." But they've got two albums mm-hmm. and they've got two videos. They must be they must be loaded. Yeah. And then you read the real story where they you know had nothing and right. were just like you know hand to mouth. And that's when the real world of, of, of the music business, as we always say, the business comes in. You're like, wow, you really are scratching and clawing oh, yeah. at all times. Yeah, because that's what we used to do is that because we were doing mainly tours opening for other bands, we would ask for a per diem. That would be our pay. And I think it was somewhere around $200 or maybe $250 a week is yeah, what we, like we made every week. So that was our pay. Uh, but only when you're on tour. So you, when you'd go home then for four weeks off tour, you had to make that $800 a month stretch into that month <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, okay. Right, right. So we were we were on our unless you want to go cut some grass or something. Like yeah, that. unless yeah, but you wanted side yeah. jobs when you're at home. So then you think about it, echoing on keel. 
our big quote unquote big record rising that we did, you know, made the connection with the WCW guys and DDPs in our video and that's aired on Nitro and there's seven million people watching it and all of a sudden we're on Carson Daly's countdown on MTV and like, yes, everything. I'm still living in a one bedroom apartment with my girlfriend <laughs> and still struggling to pay for that one bedroom apartment that costs six hundred bucks a month. And I was driving a pickup truck that I bought from my manager for five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Like it, literally three albums in, MTV, all those things, still super what what we would consider in America poor. Mm-hmm. You know, in Somalia, super rich. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's all relative. Yeah. But, yeah. but by our standard of living, of what you would think, right. Um, yeah, compared to what people would compared to what the average person would think your standard of living is is like it's not it's not even close. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you you it life's what you make of it. You do what you love to do and you know, you're as wealthy as you want to be. But like you said, it's that thing where you have two albums out. People think you live in a mansion. People think you have a collection of cars, you right. know, all these uh, things and it's like it's not even remotely true, you know. When you're talking I mean, you, you said like if you're on this tour with with five bands or other other tours you do, I'm assuming you don't have a crew. Are you the guy who has to go rich to the to the promoter and get paid? And are you keeping the merch money with you? And were you ever scared that someone's going to rip you off? Yes. Uh, on our first tour, our the one that we were talking about with the five bands, it was the first time in Europe. This was in '96, and we went to Amsterdam for the first time. So we're like, oh my god, we had to go to the red light district just to put eyeballs on this thing. You know, you hear the, yeah, the yeah, legend yeah. of yeah. the red light district. So dumbass Rich Ward takes. Because he's not going to leave it on the bus with the 17 other knuckleheads who I have zero trust for. Um, So I bring every dollar and everything I have, I have it in my backpack, which is our pay, our merch money for the entire tour is in my backpack. And I'm walking down those narrow alleys in in the red light district. Little cobblestone streets. Yes. And then someone says, hey, dude, your backpack's open. And... Someone walked behind me, unzipped it, started going through my stuff. Luckily, the money was at the very bottom. Oh. I lost my toiletry kit. I lost all of my like stuff that could be replaced, T-shirt, hat, this and that. And the money was just at the bottom. And it was oh. about 30,000 euros. I know. And if I, I was thinking, I almost had a heart attack because that money wasn't ours. That money had to be given to the record company because how that works back then is they're giving an advance, but you have to use your merch money to pay them back. Mm-hmm. Plus, we had a merch split. With, oh, it's just like, if it was my money, it would have been worse enough. Knowing that it wasn't even my money, I was just holding on to it. And they're going to believe you. That I got pickpocketed. Like, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's my money? <laughs> Do you remember the time we were in Paris and uh, Luke was our tour yeah, manager? I was just time, thinking of that. Yeah. And he had his backpack with the same thing, all of our money and merch money and everything, and our passports in it because we just come to France. And he lost, he couldn't find his bag. And I. And maybe you too, Rich, we thought we heard somebody come on the bus, remember? Yes. And we were convinced somebody had, had stolen the backpack. Worst feel because now you and I, as as the Fozzie partners, are like, there's, you know, 10,000 euros, 20,000 euros, no passports. Yeah. That's he, the worst feeling of knowing, that sinking feeling of, oh my God, because then if you're, it's like being, it's like being in a position where this is your business. We have to keep going on, and that twenty thousand 
whatever it was, had to be used not to pay us, to pay bills. So yeah. now we're going to have to go into bank accounts and extract personal money if it's there to keep the yeah. tour to going. The tour yeah. going. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, like you lose something of your own, it sucks, but you can deal with it. When you've lost everyone's, you know, yeah. you've lost, you lose your passport, it sucks, but you can deal with it. You lose everyone's passport, you lose the tour money, money that belongs to other people. You were responsible for all this money, holding on the, all this stuff, and you somebody snagged it or you lost it yeah. yeah thankfully just to the end of the story it fell between the cracks of yeah. like the couch and the wall in one of the dressing rooms but it took him a good two hours to find it i remember you and i were scouring the streets looking for young tough looking guys thugs <laughs> going through a backpack yeah, yeah as if they'd be sitting on the side of the, like what well, i just found je suis at the backpack. <laughs> did you guys ever get ripped off at all yeah, bunches. Yeah. Just like Fozzie. You, you yeah. always have promoters that rip you off. Oh, okay. You know, but you never got like, actually give me your money. And no, stuff. no, no. Yeah. I do remember um, we played a show with Stuck Mojo in Ireland, and we were on a bus, and we were parked on a city street for the night, like across from the venue. And I got up in the night to like go to the bathroom or something, and I remember hearing this noise, and I walked to the front of the bus, and the front door of the bus was open. This was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and like these kids who were out riding their bikes had seen this bus sitting on the side of the road and just decided to see if the, it was unlocked and the driver or whoever had not locked it and wow. so they were just you know they were just, all I saw were hands reaching through and just grabbing whatever they and I and it was like these little street urchin kids on their bikes out at two o'clock in the morning you know I hear Frank go hey get the what the fuck are you doing? And they just took off like scalded puppies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was uh, some of the other tours they did? I, mean, I know, like, Sunshine Media used to fly you guys over for promo tours, and there wasn't there one where you and Frank got got dumped on the side of the road or something. Uh, that, that was one? an actual tour. That was yeah, it was yeah, an actual. T- tour. T- we'll tell that. Well, story. Yeah, that was. Everyone t- asks about that story. Well, this was it. like a, a, the classic. Stuck Mojo goes to Europe, does its first headlining tour in the summer of '98. And at again, the big carrot at the end of the tour was uh, a few shows opening for Pantera in Europe. So we were like, "Oh my god, this you know, like because you guys always had a good name in Europe too, right?" I remember that Dynamo yeah. show you were on the cover of Ardshock magazine. Yes. you were right. Yeah, and they they always uh, because the press liked us, uh, and part of it was is because we we always kind of played the the redneck cowboy card a little, you know, like. We understood the the art of stagecraft, and that even though we were from Atlanta, if you puffed up your feathers a little bit, you, you looked more impressive. Um, and so the, the Europeans thought, "Wow, this is a band from a culture." The same reason they love Biohazard. Look at these guys from Brooklyn, right? You know, like the tattoos and the like, the gangster look, and like so. Europeans love, especially the Germans, loved that. Yeah. Um, and so w- w- the press was really good to us. So we did this tour, and at the very end of the tour, um, our manager, Mark Willis, who manages Fozzie, got in a big shouting match with the owner of Century Media. And it was determined that uh, the owner of Century Media was going to teach Mark Willis a lesson. We were at their offices in Dortmund, Germany, because we had rented a bunch. They used to keep gear for us to, you know, for bands to take on tour. So we were there returning the gear at 10 o'clock in the morning yeah, to, go, so, and to yeah, go to the airport. The tour was night. over, and we, it was a German bus company. So the idea was at the end of the tour, we would drop off the, the bus 
at the the uh, or the bus would drop us off at Century Media offices in Dortmund, and then we would take two vans, one for the equipment and one for the guys, and we would go to the Heathrow Airport because we flew in and out of Heathrow instead of I don't know why we didn't fly to Dortmund, yeah, just of whatever. So cheaper. Yes, exactly. Probably save 50 pounds <laughs> yeah, per ticket. That's right. So, so we, we were going to take these two vans. Well, he was going to show Mark because he canceled the vans, uh, the van rentals. Ooh. Okay. And this is midday, and we needed to leave to go to Heathrow immediately yeah. if we were going to be able to make it. And so, I think our flight was at nine o'clock that night. We were there at like ten o'clock in the morning. But to get from Dortmund to you know to London is a long. No, no, drive. it was an AM flight the next day. Was it? Yes, okay. it was an AM flight. Yes, you're right. You're right because it was we an AM yeah, flight the right. next day at like nine AM the next day. Yes, yeah. and we were one or two o'clock in the afternoon still negotiating what was going to happen. And I went and talked to the owner of Century Media and said, listen, I get it. You're mad at, at Mark Willis. Okay, you guys have you, – you can – yeah. we're the ones sitting here on the side of the road with no money because we, we didn't make any money. We just did 10 weeks in, in Europe and we didn't have any money. Nothing. nothing. Because part of the deal wow. was they took 100% of the merchandise money to help pay back for our bus expenses. So we literally had no money at all. None of us. We were dead broke. And the agreement was the, the record company would pay for the two vans and make sure that we got back to Heathrow knowing that there was no money. So uh, Bones and our tour manager, Gary McDaniel, were screaming, going crazy. There was like, it was a full on, oh, fuck this guy, and this ain't no way it's going down. And I turned to Frank and I said, oh, hang, hang quick. And I said, will you get us one van? Just get one van to to Heathrow just as a as a compromise sure it's like awesome frank we'll put everybody else in that van with the equipment and you and i will basically figure it out right well the what happened was it's like we got okay now we've got one van so it's like okay let's just pile all the gear and everybody in a van if people have to sit on their laps you know that yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was like no you can't do that the way the laws are in europe everybody has to be belted in the seat you know all this stuff and we still were going back and forth and finally it was like how many people we can take we can take everybody but two people and rich was like all right i'm staying behind who's staying with me and i was like i'll stay and so it was like all right you guys get in the van get the gear in the van and get out of here get to Heathrow you know Frank and I will find our way there we'll get there you know it's like and with no money no money so we basically didn't hitchhike across Europe correct we got a ride from a guy who spoke zero English and didn't know how to read a map <laughs> yeah somebody it was, the story was going all through the offices it was like you know you, are you hearing what's going on blah, the blah, Century blah. Media offices the Century right. Media sure, offices sure. and some guy had sympathy for us and, and offered to drive us to the ferry port in, in Calais yeah in France okay. Our Century Media record company president suggested that we hold a, re- a radio contest <laughs> to win the, pr- the rights to drive Rich and Frank to, mm-hmm. to Heathrow. Oh, my God. Right. What a dick. And yeah. then he said, hey, it's not that big a deal. I hitchhiked to India one time. And he was, I was like, well, you did that because you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he would, Over he the would, course of three weeks. <laughs> he was trying to make it sound like we were being a bunch of spoiled, pampered Americans, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just, just hitchhike. Just, you know, you go to a truck stop and, you know, talk to truck drivers and see who's going you know near where you are can you give me a ride i do it all the time i i, I hitchhiked from what a here dick to, from here to india or just you know? pay for the fan yeah asshole. exactly exactly but the point was is that it was like dude you don't understand we don't speak the language right right and the other problem was is that we have a nine o'clock flight and this is not internet age right this is yeah a paper ticket 
You mm-hmm. show up with that paper ticket or you lose said mm-hmm. ticket yeah. and have to buy another one. That was the pressure. It's, that's what I explained this to folks. Yeah. It's like, why didn't you just call up? It's like, you don't understand. There's no cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're not just trying to get to London. We're trying to get to London before 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Yeah, before, yeah, or 8 o'clock. If yeah, like, exactly. 7 o'clock. Exactly. Yeah, if we had no deadline, we could have pitchhiked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. made it an adventure. So did you get to the ferry and then, and then we did. after? We got to the ferry. We got on the ferry. We, it was a five-hour drive from where we were to the ferry. Ferry. And this guy, like he spoke German, spoke no English. And he got, we got in his car. I sat in the back seat. Rich sat in the front seat. And Rich was navigator. And he had a map of Germany, you know. And the highway systems in Europe are a lot different. It's like it's it's hard to figure intricate, out. Yeah. And and he couldn't communicate with this guy. So he would look at the map. And when he figured out, okay, I think we need to turn here. He would just like tap the. I took you know that way. Yeah, go point, that point, way. Oxstein, Oxstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lefton. Yeah. So Rich was navigating the guy. The guy didn't know where he was going. He was just <laughs> and like five hours later, we we got to the ferry port. Yeah. In France. In France. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're not even close to being. Yeah. There's no. a three hour ferry ride or so, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And our, on the ferry, then the ferry drops you off. We have to hike. To the to the actual tube station, which is a, a mile or more yeah. away, at four a.m. They don't, the tube <laughs> station's not even open, so we sleep on a bench for like an hour. Then we take the first train in. I, I remember first of all thinking, okay, this guy now has to go back to where he was five hours away. I don't know how he's going to get there because we <laughs> we had to tell him how to get where we were. How the hell is he going to get back? But we did we did make it. But the yeah. point was is that you know. It's all those experiences of riding in a van for four or five years up until that point of being independent and knowing you can do this. Right, sure, of like, course. You're like wild dogs. Oh, yeah. Most yeah. people would crumple and, and die. But like for us, like you know, you just do it. Yeah. You get there. Yeah, that's exactly why you and I bonded at the very beginning and we when we started talking about Fozzie is because you'd already gone through the rites of passage. All of it, mm-hmm. yeah. You had road dog for years. Yeah. And that... That stuff will make you tough, which is why I, I always think it's like you see these young bands that go straight from high school to a tour bus, their record company. It's like if You're you right, don't yeah. go through the briar patch. Yeah. Yeah. Dave know. Mustaine just said that recently. And of course, got a lot of heat because he gets heat for everything, but said the same thing. So many bands go on tour right off the bat don't have that experience and it's not just road experience it's also life experience yeah, yeah. how to deal with adversity absolutely you know the show must go on yeah. you know what happens when they book you into a club called spike's doghouse in jacksonville florida that's a skin white power skinhead bar and you have two black guys in the band and during the first song they're all zeke heiling you you know and saying you know heil mm-hmm. hitler and yelling the n-word and f you this and that mm-hmm. and that and how do you get out of there alive because it's that's their club and this right. is their clubhouse. This is their place, you, yeah. Right. So uh, one guy grabs a screwdriver and says he's going to kill everybody. And then I say, you realize they have guns. <laughs> <laughs> Get in the van. <laughs> Shut your mouth. You took a screwdriver to a gunfight. <laughs> what are you going to do? Loosen their bumpers? <laughs> what about the time when you showed up to the club and you had, uh, like, was it one person pl- was there? Was it Chicago or something? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was Philly, wasn't it? Philly, Philadelphia. four. One paid, three guys from Nuclear Blast. <laughs> The record company, they were like, hey, we wanted to come and support you. The, the club owner hated us so much but got pressured into booking us. That's how the, the that's how the business works. An agency says, well, if you don't book my band, I won't give you any of the other six or seven on my roster. Mm-hmm. So the guy was like, well, F you. I'll book the, you guys, but guess what? I'll give you 400 bucks for the night. And when we showed up, he was like, here's your 400 bucks. I didn't want to book your band. You can go ahead and go. And we're like, yeah. He told our tour manager, 
I didn't want this show. I got pressured into having this show. As far as I'm concerned, here's the money I owe you. You know, I don't even care if you play. Just like here's what here's what I was pressured to pay you. Here it is. Get out of here. <laughs> and we were like, no, we're gonna play right. <laughs> because we had a few friends that yeah. we knew were gonna show up. The guys so, from Nuclear Blast. To the degree he didn't want this show. You know, every sh- every club puts posters on the wall. You know, and they'll have like the calendar that they actually like make and then make copies of on a copy yeah, machine sure. where they like you know the machine you know, head on Tuesdays. Machine head. Right, right. You know. Our date was blank. He didn't even take the time to just write our name on a piece of paper and run it through a copier with all the other names. That's how much he did not want us there. Yeah, and we played. There was four people and the bartender. They actually, I heard they made a plaque and just to shame us, they put a plaque. Most underattended show ever. Oh. One person paid or something oh, like that. And Philadelphia was our second biggest uh, album selling city. Uh, after Atlanta. Yeah. After Atlanta, we had sold more records in Philly than anywhere else. So they went out of their way to, to, to yes. sabotage the show. Yes. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You mentioned before about how you're trying to get to England to do the tour with Pantera. Uh, you, I, I, did you tour with them in England? I know you did in South America for sure. It was one no, with Pantera. We did. We had one show in Germany and four shows in Spain. So how was that touring with them? Because they were at their kind of at their peak at the time. Well, not the peak, but '98 or so. So they're still basically the biggest metal band in the world besides Metallica at that point in time. Yeah, it was. They were touring actually on the live record that they did. They did that one hundred. What was it? One hundred and one proof. proof yeah. yeah, and that was what they were touring on. So actually, I mean, they were still Pantera, you know, but they were actually they weren't quite at their peak. It wasn't gotcha. like we opened for them on uh, Far Beyond Driven or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah, but still, I mean, you know, that was a dream come true. We had toured with a lot of bands that we end up uh, for myself. I ended up getting to tour with a lot of bands that I became a fan of. When we went on the tour, I was aware of them, but I wasn't necessarily a big fan. And that's what happens a lot of times because you're around right. the bands actually watch them. It's happened to us countless times. Right. Buck Cherry being one of them for me. Exactly. Yeah. But to tour with Pantera, that was like a dream come true because I was a fan. I was a little kid getting yeah. to tour with like my idols. And so, um, and the, you know, the numbers were great. It was, a, you know, but it, they weren't like, you know, honestly, they weren't at their peak. Of, I gotcha. You know, we were playing arenas. Mm-hmm. We were playing arenas. And what made it special was they asked us. It was, yes. they paid us. They right. didn't, they, they didn't cool. say, they, they reached out to our agent and said, it was just two bands, like old school metal, right, you right, know, right, concerts. Yeah, no, yeah. it wasn't a package. It was Pantera with special guests stuck. And mode. every night, all four members stood on the side of the stage and watched first song through the last song. And That's they, cool. Yeah, every night, and it was a big deal. They'd come out on stage, bring shots. They were nice guys, you know. They treated you good. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And yeah. You could Amazing. tell that they were real fans of music, like that they. And I will say that it was the first time that I really recognized that that we weren't the only dysfunctional band on the planet. <laughs> you really started to get that because Phil rode on the crew bus. 
and had a separate dressing room from the rest of the guys. And it was a real eye-opener for me as a huge fan. And I knew that we had the same kind of split in our group where there was no hate. It was just, there was just a divide. Just get along, It was yeah. Frank and I hung, and then Bones and Corey hung. And there was, there was always this kind of uh, a, a bit of a separation into camps. And I thought, wow, that kind of sucks. I'd love to be a gang. And then you start to realize, well, that's the way most bands are. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It's not worse. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of bands that are even worse. Did, and, you, did you have some interactions with, with Dime? Dime oh, oh yeah, yeah, totally. He yeah. had just got through watching uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, so he would just run around all day long saying, Tell that bitch to chill! Tell that bitch to chill! Like, I just remember how funny he was, you know, when you get a catchphrase and yeah. you can't stop. And, I, and he would just, he was such a nice guy because, and it also was a, uh, the recognition of the fact that they had this party boy, like, they were like David Lee Roth had in the day, except for they were professionals like David Lee Roth was in that when they poured their drinks, they poured super light on Crown and super heavy on ah, Coke. That's the secret. And then they'd pour yours super heavy on Crown, <laughs> super light on Coke, that's the and secret. watch the magic happen as yeah. you threw up on yourself and you <laughs> fell down the stairs. And they look like wizards. Yes, exactly right. And tell, speaking of that, tell them about the, the, the shot of uh, Crown in the eye. Yes, this was on my stage. First show we did uh, was the uh, Dynamo Festival. They were headlining uh, one of the days at Dynamo, and we watched from side stage, and it was like, wow, we start the tour tomorrow. This is on a festival package together, but tomorrow is the day the, our, actual festi- our actual tour starts. And so we had a band meeting. Here's the deal. Don't fanboy out. Okay, remember, we're guests on their tour. They asked us to be here. Stay in your dressing room. <laughs> Just like if you were about to go out on a date with a girl you really like, <laughs> yeah. be cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly right. You have to do these things. Like, remember, this is, this is their profession. This is our professional. Show them professional courtesy. Don't fanboy out and hang out in their dressing room before the show. Mm-hmm. Give them their room if they invite you in. Like, you're having to have these talks because you forget in, in, this is business. You know, this is, they're here to work, and we're their guest. So then I look over side stage at the Dynamo, and Bones has grabbed like five or six shots of of uh, some type of dark whiskey, probably Jack Daniels or probably Crown, is yeah. something, right. yeah, some dark whiskey. And he walks out with a platter, you know, during, while they're playing. Now it's during a song. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's not even in between. You know, it's like he doesn't, Bones, even, he doesn't even know them. He doesn't. Even, yeah, so I'm I'm actually acting it out like Zach Wildwood. I'm standing. Yeah, yeah you have to do the so, whole thing. Yeah. So I'm walking over. Bones has got it, and Dime leads his head back for Bones to pour the shot in, and Bones throws it right in his eye, <laughs> <laughs> and turns him into a guitar shredding pirate <laughs> because he's trying to play with the big one-eyed squint going on and he's like squinting he's like shaking and it's like and he's like and he he came back after that song he's like damn man he's like if I'd have known that thing had burnt so bad I I bet it's or something about burning on the inside as bad as it does (laughs) on the outside yeah yeah burns on the outside as bad as on the inside but you know how how ridiculous was it that that was his introduction to us was pouring brown whiskey in his eye and that's also because the singer did that's the injunction of your whole band yes exactly Right, like Mojo yeah. Boys poured poured, poured yeah. in my eye. Yeah, know? that's exactly right. It'll always be us. It's <laughs> never like him. Like that's really cool. So, so after that tour, was there ever talk about doing more? Or yeah, there was, but we we kind of 
we were slowing down gotcha. at that point. I yeah, mean, yeah. it was we did another album after that, but the band had basically kind of broken up mm-hmm. because Corey got an offer to go play for Life of Agony, which he did, and that band turned into Stereo Mud. So then we had Dan Dryden became our bass player in Stuck Mojo, but we were behind the scenes talking about maybe putting a pause on it because we had met you. Fozzie was happening. We had this idea of doing the six speed band, which is something that was like Stuck Mojo, but with melodic vocals. Yeah. So trying some different things, and we it was mainly because there was so much dysfunction in the band. It just wasn't. We felt like there wasn't any joy in it. We had these other vehicles that we felt like could be successful. Let's shift our energies. And so there were some opportunities for us to continue to do really cool things, but for Stuck Mojo. But we really, our heart wasn't in it. Quickly tell me the story when um, about Bruce Dickinson and Mojo. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, in, in 1996, we were in New York City. Um, there was a a, a music concert conference called the CMJ College Music Journal which was like a big conference where there were panels and speakers yeah, it, was and, yeah, it was a big deal and a lot of bands would play and Bruce Dickinson was there to promote Accident of Birth Okay, the album wasn't out yet, but he was there to talk about hey, I'm working with Roy Z, I've got a new band and this is what I'm doing and and um, we saw him kind of milling around looking at some like some type of Vans shoes or something at a display inside. I was like, oh my gosh, Bruce Timerson. Mm-hmm. So I walked over to him with my managers. At the time, Stuck Mojo was managed by Mark Willis and a lady named Nancy Camp. And we just said, hey man, big fan. Uh, we do a cover of Wrathchild. I know it's not your song, but uh, I know you still sing it every night. Mm-hmm. And we're playing at Rosalind Ballroom. God, I'd be honored if you'd come and sing it with us. I mean, the... the only someone who is young and exactly. naive would even ask the something. balls to open the conversation with that. Right. Yeah. And keep in mind, we don't do a cover of Wrathchild. We had recorded a cover of <laughs> That's Wrathchild. That's right. We had never played it. We had just recorded it. Yeah. But we were so excited. Like it was like, what do you when you're a kid? It's like you with with hey hey uh, James, we got a sixer in here. <laughs> yeah. Last head field. We want to drink some beer because we had a six pack. That's the same kind of thing. When you're young, you just are. You don't ha- like today. I would just never walk yeah. up to anyone and say, hey, we're jamming. Will you want to come? Yes. And and we, I remember our anxiousness of like, is he going to show? Is so what did he say to you when you mentioned that to him at the, at the CMJ? Like, yeah, sure. He's like, I got stuff to do, but if I can clear out the time, because you're at Roseland, and that's a big venue. You sure, like, yeah. It's a famous were you headlining gig. it? No, it was a Biohazard. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, but it was sold out. I mean, yeah. So we're, yeah, we're on stage in Roseland Ballroom in New York. In and front it's, of 3,500 people. Yeah, it's packed. It's a big room. And, and so... You know, we're thinking it's waiting for Guffman. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you've got the chair. Yeah, and we're waiting. We're on stage. No sign of Bruce. No sign. Second song. No sign of Bruce. Okay, he's not showing. He's not showing. We keep playing. I look over. Third song. He's on the side of the stage. Wow. What? What? (laughs) Yeah. And then, of course. Bones has no idea who Bruce Dickinson is, <laughs> right. right? It's like, it's it's like guy, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, this is Ian Pace. Could have been anyone, <laughs> yeah, right, any right, classic yeah, yeah, metal yeah, yeah. guy, right? So Bones doesn't really introduce him. He guys, yeah, everybody knows who this is. But the problem is no one really did At the know time, who no one did. <laughs> because he had short hair. He had just cut his hair, so he didn't look like That's Bruce. Right. And also this is 1996. You know, it's like, I, you know. Bruce had been the, gone the, at Iron Maiden for three years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the height of, you know, the height of grunt. It's, yeah. it's a new. It's so, like, Iron Maiden were not at the peak of their powers at the time. And this is like an audience who probably about a third of the people, like, knew who Iron Maiden was. It's a biohazard. Yes, it was biohazard fear 
Fear Factory. Mojo yeah. type thing, yeah. So it would have been nice to have said, hey, this guy was in the greatest heavy yeah, metal band Bruce Dickinson. Yeah. yeah, but he didn't. So we have this guy uh, on stage with short hair going crazy, foot up on the most like, and I followed him around. Slapping like, my cymbals and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was like, yeah. So he was rocking. Oh, he was, oh, he was into it. Oh, into it. <clears throat> Except we were playing it in the wrong key. Yeah. <laughs> because we tuned everything down. So it was like, bunch of seniors. You could hear him adjusting. <laughs> like after the first couple of notes, he probably thanked you for it. Though he'd have to sing it as high. I uh, know, no doubt. But it was like for me in '96. That was my first moment of thinking, "Wow, I did something that in '86." Yes. This was like I had his posters all over my wall. Right. I had his wristband that I caught. Yeah, his, sweat you band. know that I sweatband that I would wear everywhere. And so it was the first taste ever of like I am in now in the same league. Yes, with these guys, you're and in then, the big leagues. Then later we saw Bruce at a festival in 98 that we opened for Rammstein and Bruce Dickinson, and we were right before Bruce's band. I saw him in catering. He's like, hey, Rich, what's going on? And like a little poop came out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little poop. You know, just thinking, wow. Like you know, all of a sudden now, you know, I guess it's just, it must be the same as for anyone, like playing single A ball and then playing in the major leagues. You You feel like I have arrived, even though – you know, maybe I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm not selling millions of records, but I am still in the in the league. You are in the. Uh, this is not a detrimental thing. You're in the lowest level of the big leagues. Yes, yes. like you're in the big. You're like on the. You're the fourth line playing for the New York Rangers. Yeah, you're exactly you know what right. I mean? Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's that's a. I find that's a real. It's a cool feeling, but that's when you know that you know you got to get better. You got to be yeah. good. You got to be always great. And when your goal from the very beginning is just. To play the pool party. (laughs) It never bothered me like it bothered other people that we never made it huge. Because um, I don't think my expectations were ever to be a multimillionaire or have nice cars and things. My goal was always to make great records. Like Frank and I, we used to room together and, you know, he would always... He would see me. I'd, I was constantly writing, and I was passionate about music. And then we started working out because we wanted to look better than the right. Rest of so the you bands. guys always had, we, yeah, we wanted to be like tougher than everybody else. We realized it was show business. So I wanted to look like that. If we got in a fight with Biohazard, we could hold our own. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We wanted to. We wanted to to make sure there was no stone unturned. And if it happened, great. If it didn't, it didn't. And I, the reason that the band Corey left in '98 was a the big realization for all of us, which was that the hope was always that we would... The goal wasn't to be millionaires, but the hope was Danny Goldberg from Mercury Records was coming to see us in New York City, uh, and we had a sold-out show in the city at Coney Island High, and and I remember he and his assistant came on the tour bus, who she had signed corn and i mean was talking about how she's going to put us on tour with kiss and that this like wow. we were going to be the biggest thing and i remember writing on the back of a paper plate and handing it to frank do you remember what it said yeah um we were we had an rv that we were touring in at the time and we we're parked on a city street you know in uh new york getting ready to play this and he and rich comes on the rv and he's holding a little paper plate like in front of his chest and he's like what's he doing and he just like had this look on his face and he made sure everybody was looking at him and he just like flipped it over and it said, we're going to Mercury on the back of it. Oh, and boy, I'll never forget that moment, you know, because it was just like, you know, 
we were we were working so hard to you know be the best band that we could and write great records and put on great shows and you want to just do that to the highest level that you can you know and of course every band wants to get to that next level you know and we always heard things in the wind of like so you know this label's interested that label's interested and rich was always very good about like he didn't indulge that stuff yeah yeah you to know this day even I, yeah. right he never indulges that stuff and so for him like no disrespect to anybody else in the band, but if anybody else in the band had said, "Hey, we're going to Mercury," it'd be like, "Great, nice, yeah, that's very nice," you know, because you know it's like most likely it's not true. He didn't indulge in that stuff, so when he especially made such a like showing of it, like yeah, yeah, that's when I knew like deep down it's like he's not bullshitting. This is for real, and it was the president. It wasn't like some lower level. Yeah, sure, it was, the, it, top it was top. the real thing because they were starting to see the trend. This was 98 Limp Bizkit mm. was huge. Like, they were Papa Roach. Oh, there was other bands were starting to pop up. We had led the charge, and we were, they felt like they could bank on us because this was real. These weren't white kids trying to do <laughs> rap rock. This could be what Pantera had been to metal, mm-hmm. and that this was real, it was dangerous, and that we could do something. Some, and Korn was just starting to, these bands were really starting to, to break. And the problem was that they offered a big buyout to Century Media. A big buyout. If my recollection is right, I think it was 250000 bucks just to get us out of the remaining one record. Yeah, just to get us to that, it, like, at the beginning of the marathon, you got to run, like, yeah, six yeah, miles sure. just to get to where the race starts. Yeah. It was like they wanted to get us to that starting line. So, buy this contract. We have one remaining album. Buy it out. Okay. And Century Media said, we agree on that money. But we also want Century Media to be an imprint underneath mercury on it it's like no no if we buy it you don't have anything to do with it you you, you're done i'm not giving you money to be an imprint if you want a profit share with this fine you want to pony up some more money to help promotion but if you're going to make us break this band by spending because danny said we're going to spend a million dollars on you we're gonna we're gonna put you with a big producer, videos, big tours. We're gonna this is what it's gonna take. I'm not going to spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars just to spend another million and to help this little independent metal label that from these German guys who are getting on my nerves. Because and it was the same guy who made us hitchhike, the guy who was the burr in the saddle. Yeah. And basically, what ended up happening is is that Mercury just got tired of dealing with this guy. Oh. Because he recognized that he was always going to be a problem because he was going to insert himself into every little detail and he wasn't willing to just resign to take the money, say, we made a lot of money on Stuck Mojo. We were their biggest selling band ever in the u.s but he would always tell us that we were his favorite hobby like you know he spent money on us and never made any which is bullshit that was his way of belittling us couldn't you have done a a quick quick b-sides album or something and get it over with or what they it was too much time it was too much time they they felt like this was the moment for this thing six months every yeah yeah, the trend was they're probably right they exactly were right because by 2000 they were willing to do a the rap rock thing was was changing yeah Yeah. papa roach was singing yeah like everybody was changing things sugar ray had already left the building i mean Um, you know and then it was changing it turned into lincoln park Mm -hmm. which was kind of boy bandy kind of stuff because they saw the potential in our band 
you know, to be a successful band, but they didn't see the band that's going to have like the monster radio hits, you know, yeah, like right, that's right. going to sell truck. I mean, they thought we were going to be very successful. So they were willing to do a lot, but there was a limit to what they were willing to do. And uh, the guy that we were in, you know, that we were contracted with was just making it too hard. It's like the, the, they just got to where this just isn't worth how it. This band isn't worth How that. frustrating was it for you guys when that happened? It was terrible. It caused so much problems that that's why Corey left the band. Mm-hmm. Like the bottom dropped out. That was his. Cha- that was your chance. And, yeah, yeah, that was it. He was like, hey, it's done. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and take off. I got a great offer to do this. And we continued on for the same reason that everybody continues on, because what are we going to do? Right. What else is there? Right. You're in a band. You, yeah. you have no other skills. Yeah. Like I, you know, any other marketable skill that we had was going to only uh, require a five dollar hourly wage. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and ninety nine cent patties. That's exactly right, and, and so it was terrible. But we we brought in a great bass player in Dan, mm-hmm. and we made a live album, and we continued to do great shows. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden, you know. I mean, we there was still a lot there, but you just had that sense deep down that that forward momentum that we'd had for the last several years had just kind of dissipated. We did make the best album of our career in Declaration of a Headhunter. It was the best reviewed album. People loved it. But because we were a bit of broken dudes at that point, you know, and, and... you know, when you're when you're older, you you don't look at each other as the enemy. When things go bad, you, you toughen up. When you're younger, you start to conquer and divide internally. Mm-hmm. And when the, when all that stuff happened, you know, I'm staring at Bones, thinking, uh, well, if he could sing, maybe this would sure, be. Sure, you know, sure, you like, yeah, yeah. and maybe if Rich was a better shredder and not just a, a riffer. Yeah. You know, like everyone's starting to look at each other as they're the problem. You know, like he's only at eight percent body fat. Maybe if he was at four, yeah. Yeah. you know, like. But, but none of that stuff was in your control, though. It was a, it was a, it was a complete money thing. Yes, it's not like they turned you down. Correct. It was something out of your control, which is frustrating. But talking about the best album of your career, and you mentioned Declaration. I think yeah, here come the Infidels could be the best album of your career in a lot of ways. Uh, it, the, it blew me away. It's the new record, and uh, it's it, because it, it's funny because it seems like the Infidels came out of the reunions that you did last year with Corey and Bones back in the back because you did a couple albums in the 2000s with Lloyd yep good albums a little bit eclectic yes but then you kind of got back together which led to to doing this record how was first of all quickly how was it doing the reunion show and then what was the circumstance that led you to the record with Robbie the new singer well the the those two mid 2000 records were studio projects mm. Fozzie was our priority yeah, I yeah. wanted to write some songs that weren't Fozzie material and that became the vehicle for it right. so they, it was probably a bit of a misstep in that they weren't necessarily stuck mojo songs mm. and it wasn't that but that was the roof that I, I put them under um, once the reunion happened uh, and, and and we all went in w- with a little bit of hesitation. Is this going to work? Uh, let's see, uh, because there was a lot of history. Let's take some baby steps here and just see if we can even be in a room together. First show was amazing. We did. Everything was great. Bones was stone sober. Everybody was on their best behavior, as you are. Like when you marry your or you go out on a date with your ex-wife, <laughs> yeah, everyone's yeah. on their best behavior. And then, you know, a month or two later, you remember why you guys broke up the first time. Nothing was terrible. It wasn't one thing. It was like, I hate this guy. It was just like, wow. 
this reminded me all of these circumstances, the, you know, just the personality conflicts. And I, I'm not going to bury Bones because Bones' personality and his charisma and his, his, uh, his leadership on stage was a big part of our success. So if it wouldn't have been for him, I wouldn't have had any, hadn't had all of this stuff. But it was also the other dark side of him that also was a, was a real uh, uh, door uh, in, or a ceiling for us in other ways. Um, you know, uh, and so in a, in a lot of ways, I mean, you look at some of the greats, you look at um, you know, Scott Weiland and you look at Jim Morrison, you look at these great personalities they're just slightly yeah, crazy, right? That's right? what leads to the sanity and genius. Yeah. It's a fine line, right? Yeah. yeah. And so um, we just decided we just didn't want to do this because it was, um, ironically, just like in the 98, Corey got an offer to go do another band with St. Sonia. And once Corey was no longer part of the equation, it was no longer a reunion. So mm-hmm. then it was like, well, why do we even continue on with Bones? Because we don't, this is not a reunion. We would basically be looking at getting another bass player. Right. Um, so. Let's look at the idea of what it would be like to be with somebody else. Because you still wanted to continue Stuck Mojo, to have that in your pocket, to continue doing records. And part of that was because of... uh, Rich is doing some yoga on the floor now as he's talking. He's turning into Rick Rubin. (laughs) Sans beard, money, and coolness. Yeah, Um, uh, yeah, I mean, part of it is is that what Stuck Mojo uh, allows... Uh, me to do from a selfish standpoint is to yell about things that I'm I, I love, which is politics love and politics, so, yeah. social uh, unrest and all those things. And and I, I loved and this is such like crazy times that we're living in right now that it was like I wanted to capture that. Uh, you know, I wanted to be like a, I make an album of violent insurrection, and and I felt like the time was right to do it. And and I don't even think we could have done that record with Bones because we don't all see eye to eye. It would mm-hmm. be difficult to politically yeah, and socially. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'd have to have board meetings to see what we could <laughs> yeah. pass the sniff test. Yeah, it's like, will that line stay in the song? You know. Mm-hmm. It's like- so we met Robbie the same way a lot of bands do these days. We saw a video of him on Amazing, YouTube, right? Just yeah. like Journey and Arnell yeah. Pineda, oh, right? It was perfect. I see this guy. He reminds me of like a cross between. Um, uh, Andrew WK, but the little bit of like early Metallica. He's wearing white high tops with the with the cap in the front flipped back. Like thrash. and once again, this is just a little thing. It's like when Kiss got Eric Singer, and it was the first blonde guy ever in Kiss. Yeah. Now you have the first white singer yeah. in Stuck Mojo history. Not that it, I don't. It doesn't matter, but it's just interesting that he's white. Yeah, I did see a blabbermouth comment. Couldn't you find another black guy in Atlanta that could rap? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love Black Ralph comments because, like, I literally laugh at them more than uh, yeah, you know than a most, Robin most romantic comedy. Were you looking for something, or, or did somebody send you the cl- a clip? Somebody of sent it to me. Yeah, to check this guy out. His guitar player did. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Yeah. Just for what? Oh, just, just to check out my band. Yeah, check, check out, out my, my band. band. <laughs> Your band's great. I want the singer. Yeah, really. <laughs> and I called. Uh, I called Willis, and I said I found the new uh, singer for Stuck Mojo. He's like. I didn't know we were looking for one. <laughs> and, you do uh, now. Yeah, and he was like, shouldn't we do some auditions? No, we, this is the guy. I right off the bat, huh? knew he was the guy. Because you're very picky when it comes to working with people, too. So you must have seen, you must have been convinced completely across the board. Yeah, because he, he had, the, he, to me, he had that it factor that when I, I had, the, he had this interesting sounding voice. 
Um, and after kind of talking to him on the phone for five minutes and he's telling me about he loves Corey Taylor as like one of his heroes because he's a younger guy. So his generation of metal is different from us. Mm-hmm. But he loves Metallica and he I mean, he loves these classic kind of rock and metal stuff. But he also loves 10 million bands I've never heard of. He's like you and that he's constantly listening to music and he's constantly exploring stuff. He's not just listening. One of the things that I asked him is like, what's one of your favorite records? He's like, well, I don't re-listen to a lot of albums. My goal is to listen to a brand new album every day. Wow. <laughs> like just to try to discover new bands. He says, "That's there's so many good artists out there and if I'm not out actively like seeking mm-hmm. them out because I read, you know, fan scene pay- web pages to listen, try to find new groups. And I love that enthusiasm the same way that you and I work great together because you like have this real passion for music and I'm curmudgeon and like I hate all these bands and stuff. And it's somewhere in the middle, you know, yeah. that works. Like he's the same way as you. He loves everything. Like he just thinks, man, he'll I, find something good in it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I need that in my life. I, I don't need to work around four people. People who all think everything sucks. <laughs> what did you think, Frank and Rich presented the uh, the concept of having a new singer and having Robbie? You know, I was. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, I was just like, I was so disappointed that you know, because the reunion show went so well. I mean, it went better than I even dreamed. This is in went. Atlanta, your hometown, yeah. sold out to the rafters. Yeah, I mean, dude, you know, I knew that. Once we got in a room and started playing, I knew that we would be good. You know, I knew the band would work. It, but it's like, is anybody going to show up? You know, are we going to do this big show at Masquerade and 50 people show up? You know, you always have those fears. And and it just like, it went better than I could have expected. It was like a dream come true. And I felt so like, like oh my God, this out. is a new beginning, man. It's like, who gets this chance to do something like this? You know, have this true new beginning. And I was so like excited about the future. And then when it all kind of fell apart, I was so just like disappointed that I, I didn't know what to think, you know? And so I knew Rich had started, had, you know, was writing the record and I knew he was, he was carrying on. So I kind of was like, okay, you know, I'm just going to trust his guidance here. You know, when he showed me the video of Robbie, I saw to a degree what he saw, but I was just kind of like, you know, I was just a little, I was a little bit numb, you know, and was just like, okay, if you see something, I see it, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I I trust your judgment. Here we go with another singer and another bandmate. Right. Yeah. So, but now, you know, of course it's like, I'm excited again because I, now I truly see in Robbie what he saw the first Mm -hmm. time, you know, um, I, I think this guy, he's young and I think, I think he's just like, he's like this diamond in the rough, man. I mean, I just, mm-hmm. I, I see so much potential in him, you know, because he has that desire to be, he wants to be an artist. It's like, yeah. this is what he wants to be, not what he wants to do, not what he wants to make a living at. You know, it's like he, he is an artist. He believes in his heart that he is an artist. And I just think, I mean, I, I, he's just going to do so much. I'm almost just glad to be like hooked to his wagon. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because but I mean, but the, 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 and, but the the hook to his wagon and, and the hooks of the songs that you've written, Rich. I mean, it, it, there's it's so classic mojo. It's super heavy at times with "Here Comes the Infidels." Super catchy with "Verbal Combat." Um, I, uh, there's a couple other great, great tunes on there like that are escaping me right now. But I mean, you told me you like Charles one? Bronson. Charles Bronson. <laughs> what a great tune! It's funny because I gave you some lyrics for uh, for a song I wrote called Ozzy. 
mm-hmm. which would be kind of like, and I was like, I don't know if this is any good. And then you come up with Charles Bronson. I'm like, okay, well, Ozzy could work. Yeah. But I mean, that's a great tune, great concept. Anybody that knows, you know, Charles Bronson, Death Wish movies, get yeah. that. Yeah. You know, um, how, how do you differentiate, and this is kind of a stock question, but I would like to know, how do you differentiate between your, your Stuck Mojo riffs and your Fozzie riffs? And do they ever intercede in the middle? Always they intercede because, I mean, we've used some Stuck sure. Mojo stuff in the past that, like, like Revival, I originally wrote for Stuck Mojo. But it turned out it was much more appropriate for Fozzie. Mm. And sometimes that just happens, right? Because what makes a Fozzie song is your vocals. Mm-hmm. Because I write the way I write. There are brilliant guitar players like Steve Vai or Joe Satriani who can play a million different styles. I have one style. <laughs> it's Rich Ward. It's yeah. like riffy, kind of uh, chunky, groovy kind of things. And I can do a little bit outside of that, but not really. I have a, I'm, I'm a lot more like Malcolm Young than I am a lot of other guys in that I kind of have a sound and a thing I do. What makes Fozzie Fozzie is your approach to my riffs. So if um, I can, I can, I can approach the, the, the arrangement slightly differently. But if if I took Charles Bronson to work with you on it, we could make it a great Fozzie song. Mm, I got you. You know what I mean? It really does come down to uh, <clears throat> my songs. I always say are are blueprints, right? And you know, you come in as the face and the voice of the band, and then you take ownership of that blueprint and you make it a house. Same with Frank. It's like I program the drums and come up with some ideas, but when he plays them, then they become a part of who we are as a band. And I think, um, and I was just playing you a little while ago, some of my Fozzie uh, riff ideas that I have. And they always sound strange because they sound like just me playing like no amp. Yeah, you know, just like, yeah, it sounds ding, 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 ding. You know, yeah, but I hear it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I hear the full song in my head from that moment. I hear, I know what the drums are. Like I'm air drumming to this yeah, thing. Yeah, you're hearing I all always the, hear the arrangements and the parts. Yes, yeah. I hear my melodies. I know how things are structured. Um, the, one of the reasons why it worked great with Robbie is because I, I, I wanted him to write a lot of his own raps. Because I have a style when I write raps, and they have a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Like there's uh, two songs in the album, "Rape Whistle" and "Blasphemy." That Rape Whistle is awesome. Thanks, and I wrote all of those rap parts for him. But then I just said, "Hey, I tried working with him on some ideas, and he writes great stuff. And he has a his flow is different. You know, you can tell he loves Eminem. You can tell he loves. There's some guys that he. But once that, again, it's, it's like it's like you writing bass parts for somebody, like a bass player, like like Pauly. Pauly D plays like a bass player. That's right. You would play like a guitar player playing yes. like a bass player. Robbie's a, a singer and a rapper. You are a guitar player. You sing, but you're not a rapper. Right? That's right. Yeah, and I always demo bass parts, and then yeah. they a million times better when Pauly came yeah. in and played him. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's what a song sounds like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because, and that's the same thing, you know, and people, we've talked about it before. Sometimes when I'll demo out melody parts when i listen back to my demos i kind of recoil after hearing what it sounds like when the album's done Mm because i'm just putting placeholders down Mm -hmm. i'm not a lead vocalist i'm not a bass player i'm just putting down the basic structure as i'm hearing it in my head it becomes a fozzy song or a stuck mojo when the band members then take ownership of it and make it that part there's a tune on there called uh, Fire Me, which I listened to. I was like, oh, I was so jealous. Like, That's a Fozzie song. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, like, Infidel, Infidels, 
could be Fozzie, but that's more Mojo or verbal combat. One, two, three, four, dang, dang. And that seems to me more like a like a rap hip hop type thing. But the fire in me was like, wow, that's just a great rock song. Yeah. Under the guise of Stuck Mojo, I know you've got there's a female singer on there. I think maybe the cat from uh, Shaman's Harvest is on there. That's no female. That's Terry Chisholm. Wow. Yes. And Terry's worked with us in the past two yeah. vocals, but like there's. You know, anyways, when I heard that, I was like, that was the one where I was like, ooh, that one hurts. <laughs> I want I want that one. You know? And it, you know, that it's just like with Fozzie Records. Sometimes these songs develop into things that I didn't originally intend them to right. be. I wanted that to be kind of a motorhead, really oh. dirty song. And as it started to develop, you know... You know, all of a sudden it became more of this rock song because even though I had the melody, foul me, foul me, but I didn't hear it. Once Terry started singing it, uh, it yeah. became more of a rock song mm. because of the way his approach vocally mm. to it. Again, I can, I, can, I can imagine a song a certain way, and once the guys get in the room, the song becomes the, the product of those performers and musicians. Yeah. Just the same way that our version of Sun and Steel is really, Fozzie's version right. of Sun and Steel is great. And we stayed fairly true to the original, but with Chris Jericho and Rich Ward and Frank Fonsere on those song on that song, it's not going to sound like Maiden, yeah, because we have a thumbprint, we have a unique style of way we approach music, yeah. and I think that when people people have asked me before, how do you approach Fozzie and Mojo different? I said I can't really, mm-hmm. I'm just who I am, but when Jericho sings, it's a Fozzie song, you know, when Robbie raps. It's it's a, it's mojo, a mojo song, song right, right? I wish I was better. <laughs> I wish I was I wish I was one of those guys you could be like, yeah, I could play like Dream Theater or yeah, I could yeah. play like AC/DC. Right. What's your overall plan for Mojo at this point? The record is out, like I said, it's it's a tremendous record. I know you're doing some shows, but is there going to be a lot of shows, or what exactly is the uh, is the concept? Yeah, I I think Stuck Mojo because it's a reboot. You uh, just like a movie. You have to see how many sc- screens are going to play it, <laughs> and then you you really the, the industry sits back and watches, right? Because you put an album out, and then everyone wants to see how's it going to do. What are sales figures like? Um, w- you know, where our first show is is coming up soon. So then the idea is how many people are going to show up. Promoters are going to ask. They're going to look at Polestar, which is the the the, the registry that you yeah, find it shows out. how many people came to your shows. That's right. So. It's like that whole you know the job interview must have experience how do i get experience i have never had the job you know so it's like that you have to just find a way to kind of break into that you know it's that vicious circle you have to find your point in you know and we've had offers but but as we have discussed in fozzy if you're willing to undersell your band in order to prove you're good enough the other promoters are going well why would i pay you x amount when you took y Like, you know, so we have to realize the band has a value. If certain promoters don't see that value, I'm not going to undercut the value of the band because once I've done that, uh, again, that becomes the industry standard of what the band is worth. Yeah. So we, we have to be smart. And it and we don't mind, just like with Fozzie, you know, when we went out and did the shows with Slash, we got in a van. Mm-hmm. We're the opening band. Yeah. Like, we're, we're Road and Dogging. Was, and once a, again, that was worth it. That's course. Yeah, you know, there's other ones that aren't as worth that's it. That's right. You know, I don't mind Road Dogging. Yeah. Yeah. If it has to have be the payoff it has to be for the right reasons that's exactly Frank, right what's your favorite song on uh on infidels uh, you know i my first response is the the cheesy answer i love them all yeah, you know? yeah, yeah but um it's so funny like when rich was giving me the demos you know i'd love this other song but then when other when we'd finally finished other songs others became my favorite i guess if i had to pick a favorite right now it would be uh business of hate i just like hmm. I, I just like there's just something about that 
the way that came together that just like you know it's like i just can't wait to hear it you know i can play that one over and over again you know because it's like um it's got that motorhead feel to it it's got like an old school hardcore Mm -hmm, feel to it it, not like not metal but like hardcore you know and um I love that one. Of course, I love Rape Whistle, and uh, that's probably you know, that's just, one of my favorites as well. The title of that Rape Whistle. And I remember I played I was, it for you. No, I, I remember when studio. he told me. That's right. I came and saw you guys in the studio and watched you track that with Andy Sneap. Oh, were you there yeah. for that one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember when Rich hey, told there? me. <laughs> I, well, I remember, I remember Chris was there. I didn't yeah, remember specifically Whistle, what yeah. song. Um, I remember when Rich told me the title of that song. I was just like, oh, my God. We're back in Mojo, <laughs> yeah. baby. Yeah, we're back, man. This ain't, this ain't uh, hey, 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 one, two, three, yeah. God counts his nails. Yeah. How about you, Rich? I mean, it's hard to choose one, but for today at this moment, which one do you stand up for? Yeah, I mean, Charles Bronson for yeah. me is great because it's old school, so dirty, groovy. And I love the idea that I can write a song about the my uh, my kind of fantasizing about being – I mean, Charles Bronson in Death Wish is basically just Batman, right? He's a good guy that has been pushed to have to do over the edge, now does bad things to bad people. Mm -hmm. And I I love that concept of you turn on CNN, oh, and there's the picture of the guy who who molested and killed six kids. And all I can think of is if I could have only gotten there before the cops. You know, like (laughs) every person on the planet who has seen, it's that fantasy of what could have happened if we'd have gotten to Hitler before it happened. Yes. What could have happened if we got to Charles Manson? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think there's something about us, um, a lot of us, who feel the urge to, to protect the weak, right? I think it's instilled in us by God that, that, especially for men, that's something encoded in our DNA that we're supposed to protect those who are weaker, like children, right? It's yeah. like, isn't that our job, yeah. like as adults, is to look after the, the weaker in the herd, Right and uh, and something about that and song the, and the desire to visit retribution on those yes. who will prey on the. I, I weak, love it too because it's not just the it's just the actual concept of Charles Bronson. I'm sure, and if I, if you don't have one, you probably will actually have a T-shirt with Charles Bronson's face of on course. it. Rich. I think you do. Yeah. yeah. A final question as we get ready to uh, you know the Mojo records that you guys are doing some touring, but we're also getting ready to start working on the new Fozzie record, yeah. which everyone's been asking me about, and uh, you know you know more than 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 almost anybody about it, Rich. Just a little couple. A couple seconds explaining what the concept is going to be, or, or, or what, what are you thinking about it so far? Well, I have uh, I've been working with Johnny Andrews, uh, who was the guy who I worked with and you worked with on. Um, Let's couple, go out. Yep, Let's on, go out. No good way. Yeah, co-wrote them with you, and, yeah, and we love those songs. Yes. We thought they were excellent. And Century Media had approached you about the idea of finding a, a producer to work with, and I said, "Well, why don't we?" at least consider Johnny because Johnny's a producer um, and we already have a relationship and as we know chemistry is super important and and we've heard from enough bands who have worked with big name producers and the chemistry was just bad mm-hmm. that let's work with somebody that we know chemistry is already good yeah and, and he wants to do more producing he produced some Hailstorm stuff and, and, and yeah. he also did that Wilson record that got great reviews, reviews yeah. I saw 9 out of 10 reviews production mm-hmm. great so and he um, and he just has a real enthusiasm for the band which is great I mean, yeah. it's the first step right yeah. like I want to ask you out on a date it, even at it's even better if you like me. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Confucius oh, Ward. <laughs> you like me too. So we've written some songs. Uh, Johnny and I kind of batting around some ideas together, and now I've gone into the, the 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 writing dungeon to start working on stuff on my own. 
and uh, you've written 15 or 16 sets of lyrics. Yeah. So we've all already started throwing stuff in the pot. We're just in that early stages of lots of great ideas that need to be developed into full songs. Mm -hmm. They're all in kind of rough demos. Some of them are just a riff and a lyric. Some of it's just a la-di-da-di-da melody with no lyric and riffs. And some are even half-developed song ideas, uh, but no lyrics. Mm -hmm. Everything is hummed at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the kazoo method. <laughs> <laughs> Which is how a lot of great songs sure. are written, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, um, I, I know I've done that for a lot of songs uh, over the years. It's just I have a great melody idea that goes great with it, and then I'll go through your lyrics and find a rhyme pattern that works. And then mm -hmm. you have to ask your question, does the vibe of the, the title right. also work with the vibe of the music? And sometimes we've done stuff for Broken Soul where you didn't imagine that. That was a rock song for yeah. me, a heavy song. I remember you gave me an idea for uh, Friday Thirteenth too that was not as heavy as it turned out to be. Oh, that's right. No, no, it was Pray for Blood. Pray for Blood. Right. I was like, this is kind of supposed to be like Vikings killing their enemies, and it's not like a ethereal, you know, uh, Red Barchetta type song, you know. And you're like, okay, I'll try again. So yeah, and sometimes that's what's yeah. being in a band's about. Yeah. And and when your band fails is when someone takes it personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I remember it's been so many times people are like, oh, Rich tries to control everything. It's like. Dude, there's been so many times where you've said, oh, I'm not really feeling it, and I change it. And vice versa. We're a band. That's the way. That's right. That's right. Exactly. A band is not one dude. It's like, even if you've got one guy's mainly writing the lyrics, you, or one guy mainly writing the riffs, it's like, there's other guys in the band, and right. everyone at the table is what makes it Van Halen or Fozzie or Guns N' Roses. You excited to do some more Fozzie stuff, Frank? Absolutely. Yeah, I can't man. wait. Yeah. Looking forward to sitting in the back of the bus and uh, talking about Kiss with you. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. I can't wait. I wish... You know, I mean, I wish we were playing sooner, maybe, but it's like it's also it's coming though. I think it's good yeah. that we took a year off. It, it is. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a very it's, maiden thing to do. Not be yeah. peppering yourself in there. You know. Yeah, you 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 don't want to oversaturate. You know, it's yeah. like the it's the old, saturated. We've all the saturated. Yeah, we oh yeah, we, it's the old showbiz thing. Leave them wanting more. Yeah. You know, so it's like even for myself, it's like being away from it by the time we you know end up doing our first shows by the we'll have been away from it for a while and it's like that's what's making me excited it's like i want to get back to this you know so uh, hopefully that'll translate for you know the audience as well last question your favorite fozzy song to play live and your favorite mojo song to play live i mean i love playing do you want to start a war yeah. to me because it's the, the opener of the mm. set and i love the riff and i just love the, the chant part and i mean it's is a great song plus it's not a super difficult song to play so i can dance so can rock, we can yeah. rock. <laughs> yeah. and sometimes the really hard ones are even though it may be one of my favorites to listen to because i love the technical aspect it also requires me to plant mm -hmm. my feet in one like spot. bad tattoo yes exactly right, right. right bad tattoo is one of my favorites but you yeah. have to be very careful it's a really technical mm -hmm. riff and i can't move around and if i do it's, it's going to sound like a bad riff <laughs> 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 and my favorite mojo song uh, old school mojo song to play was is uh, you know probably something like Twisted because it's a great little bluesy riff and on the new stuff that we've been playing we played Blasphemy yesterday and I was blown away at how great it felt because yeah. it's just a big dirty Sabbath riff mm -hmm, yeah. I mean it's all Sabbath right everything sure. that Fozzie yeah. and Stuck Mojo does is a variation of Sabbath, of Sabbath right yes. and that's it's funny that you mentioned Blasphemy because that's one of those songs on the demos it was not one of my favorite tunes you know I, I liked it but it wasn't the one that I was like so looking forward to and even when the record came out it wasn't necessarily one of my favorites but it's really grown on me you know and when we played it yesterday I was like 
you know, it wasn't in the set initially. We we traded it for something else, and now I'm like, I'm really looking forward to playing that one. Uh, just something about. Um, just something about the way it feels, you know, you can't explain it. It's just like a, you know, it's like, it's like that pair of jeans that fits perfect, you know, cause you've worn them for so long, you know, you just slide into them. There's something about that song. Like your stage jeans that start really smelling after what? The right. Yeah. Well, why do you think I wear the same pair every night and never wash them? You know, you got it. It's to get that feeling. I don't care how it affects anyone else around me. Obviously. <laughs> Favorite Foz tune to play live? Uh, probably Bad Tattoo. Bad just the yeah, same thing. Just I love just like launching into the the whole double bass, you know, but it's a double bass groove. Yeah. I love doing a double bass groove, you know, right. and uh, feeling just feeling the way it locks in with the riff. And it's Triplet. just, yeah. yeah, that triplet. Da, 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 da. I mean, there's That's just the so, so yeah. few bands do that. Yeah. It's the triplet double kick thing is where the pocket is. Right. You, you, if you're playing uh, it for people listening, triplet is when you count one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Right. It's a waltz feel. Mm-hmm. And when you do that with metal, it swings, but you still get the power of the double kick. Yeah. I think it's it's that swing. It speaks to something, you know, primal in people, you know, they respond to it. And, um, All of our best songs, Martyr No More, bo, digga, digga, da, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Go, go sit down and go count through. through. Go look through. There's a lot of triplet feel in Fozzy, which is, I think, part of our signature sound is that uh, is that triplet feel, which is, I mean, not a lot of metal bands do it. That's where the brothers play. <laughs> <laughs> Mojo is back. All right, guys. Uh, great talking to you. And uh, let's get naked. Let me see the beanbag, Frank. Oh, here it is. What? <laughs> All right, thanks to Frank and Rich, two of my best friends. Always great talking with them. And remember, the new Stuck Mojo album, Here Come the Infidels, is uh, available now. And you know where you can get it, via Amazon. And when you purchase it through Amazon, please use the Talk is Jericho links. You can support your favorite bands like Stuck Mojo, your favorite podcast, uh, Talk is Jericho, in one click. All my Amazon links are at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I got Amazon links for the USA, UK, Canada too. Every time you use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to the show to help us cover production costs. All right, you can buy just about anything you can think of on Amazon, like the new Stuck Mojo album, Here Come the Infidels. And using the Talk is Jericho Amazon links won't cost you anything extra. No hidden fees or extra challenges. Just go to podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the talk is jericho button you'll actually find all the great sponsors of this show right there on that page as well okay ddpyoga.com slash jericho get 20 percent off your paddle of the ddp yoga program plus three months full access of the amazing ddp yoga now app don't forget audible.com go to audible.com slash jericho start your 30-day trial and get a free audiobook and there's true car the fastest and cheapest way to buy a new car thank you guys for supporting all the sponsors that's how i'm able to do this for you for free okay and hey stuck mojo also touring you can find out where they'll be next by following them on Twitter at We Are Stuck Mojo or Facebook. Just search Stuck Mojo or Instagram at official Stuck Mojo. Lots of Stuck Mojo. Uh, lots of big stuff coming up from them and lots of big stuff coming up right here in Talk is Jericho. March 15th, 2017 is only 216 days away. You know what that date represents? The biggest podcast ever. That's Mick Foley on Talk is Jericho. Mick Foley makes his Talk is Jericho debut on March 15th, 2017. Going to be the biggest podcast ever. 
Subscribe on iTunes now so you don't miss it. And while you're hitting the subscribe button, don't forget to subscribe to Keeping It 100 with Conan. Conan and his boys are tearing up the iTunes charts. This is a huge hit. The first podcast on the Jericho Network. And you can check it out. Go to iTunes and subscribe now. Keeping It 100 with I with Conan. Go leave a comment and a five-star rating. And do the same for Talk is Jericho if you haven't already. And remember, there's going to be some more podcasts coming up on the Jericho Network. A monthly uh, unveiling of new podcasts. And the newest one is coming up in just a few weeks. I will be revealing that this Friday. Who will be the next podcast on the Jericho Network? You're going to find out. And who's going to be the next person to go to the survey to give your uh, positive thoughts, please, on the Jericho's, the Jericho Rock and Wrestling Cruise. Don't forget, it's surveymonkey.com slash r slash Chris Jericho. Go fill out that survey now, okay? And we will see you there. Uh, hopefully this podcast happens. Hopefully, I'm sorry, hopefully this cruise happens. This podcast is definitely happening. Thank you so much for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next and on Friday. A very, very fun, fun episode. It's a, an episode dealing just with 80s teen sex comedies. Remember Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Porky's, Last American Virgin, Screwballs, Harbodies. All of those will be discussed with my good friend Eli Roth, who is an expert at 80s teen sex comedies. His brother Gabe is going to join us. It is a funny, funny, funny show this Friday here on Talk is Jericho. So we will see you then. Stay hard, stay wet, stay hungry, and a big yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.